My name is Alan. I'm one of the pastors here at this church, um, kind of oversee and serve in practice our young adult ministry, single young adult ministry for 20 t- 22 to 30-year-olds. Um, as a fellowship group, we have been taking a summer break from our exposition of the Book of Romans to tackle um, a series called Wisdom Works, a wisdom from God's Word, specifically from the book of Proverbs. And the reason we titled our summer series Wisdom Works is because I think a lot of times when we study the Bible, we think, oh, well, this is good theoretical knowledge, this is good Christian information that I tuck in the back of my pocket, but it's really not too applicable for life. And what we actually examine is that God's wisdom is very practical. It does work. It helps us, giving us insight on how life is to be lived, that The one who has designed it all has also disclosed how we can enjoy life as he has created. And so for tonight, we're going to actually look at wisdom and words. So throughout the months, the weeks, we've been uh, looking at various topics like wisdom and friendship, what the book of Proverbs has to say about how we relate with one another, wisdom and integrity, how we are to be well-rounded Christians, not just Sunday followers of Christ, but through and through from Monday to Monday, from morning to night. And tonight, we're going to look at our words, wisdom and words, how as Christians, our speech, the way we talk, how we even think should be shaped by God and His Word, by His wisdom. And so let's go ahead and pray for our time, and we will dive in. Let's pray. God, we think of your word, how it is authoritative, powerful. You can raise the dead to life, and we pray that you would quicken our hearts now to see your wisdom, your glory as shown to us in your living word, that you might make us living and active. And so, Lord, we even think of what Chris read uh, to start our service from Psalm 19. And Lord, we plead and pray, and we ask that our words would reflect Christ, that they would honor you, that may the meditations of our heart be pleasing in your sight, and that we ask that your word would convict us and curb any rough edges in our life, that we would instead now redeem our lips to serve your purposes. Lord, help us to think deeply and rightly about these things. Would you change us and transform us? That your spirit would guide us now. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. They said, they said, just two words, but the story goes, they said was all that was written on the suicide note. Two words. Two words to disprove the common adage, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Clearly, I think we all agree, words can hurt. Sometimes, tragically enough, to lead someone to commit suicide. And we've all experienced the pain of a ruthless or reckless word. We can recall the exact time, place, and person who uttered maybe a racist remark or blurted out, you're annoying, I hate you. 
On the flip side, our minds may be filled with memories when the affirmation of a boss, the encouragement from a friend, it still sticks with us, made a lasting impression upon us. We can't forget the exact time, place, and person who told us, I don't just like you, I love you. Everett said that, Um, not to me, (laughs) not to my wife, not to his mom, but to his food. So (laughs) take that for whatever it's worth. But words are powerful with enough potency to ruin lives or to restore them. They can be corralled and deployed as weapons of mass destruction or beams to prop others up with. And it's been estimated that the average person says anywhere between 10,000 to 20,000 words per day. Let that sit upon your minds. 10,000 to 20,000 words. Probably on the lower end if you're an introvert. Probably on the upper end if talking is your favorite hobby. Either way, there's nothing we do more in a given day, in 24 hours, than probably speaking. And by way of extrapolation, the number is multiplied when we factor in text messages, social media posts, and all the other modern mediums of communication. The statistic, the frequency, is both fascinating and alarming. At minimum, 10,000. 10,000 opportunities to honor God, or 10,000 opportunities to squander. The choice is ours. And thankfully, God has provided His Word to help us with ours. The book of Proverbs provides wisdom for epic moments, the once-in-a-lifetime occasions like what job to take and who to marry. But the book of Proverbs also provides wisdom for the mundane, the minutiae, for the second-by-second decisions like what we say and how we speak. In fact, Proverbs takes up the topic of our words more than anything else in our lives, more than sex, more than money, more than honesty, more than ambition. And I think we get why. Since words are ubiquitous and weighty, the combination can be dangerous if handled carelessly. Proverbs 18.21 says this, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. You don't have to understand everything going on in that one proverb to know that the stakes are high. Solomon says, death and life can hang in the balance of what we say. We need wisdom. We need to allow the supremacy of Jesus Christ, our fear, love, devotion to the Lord, to govern and influence which words then depart our lips. And speaking in a way that honors God is more than just saying the right things. Sure, it involves our words, but being wise means we ought to understand and consider the who, what, where, when, why, and how questions. And that's what we're going to take up tonight. 
We'll examine the various elements of our speech. We'll break down our time together into three main sections. Christians who seek to be wise with their words need to be mindful in content, sensitive to context, and consistent in conduct. Now, this is a survey where we're going to use the book of Proverbs to kind of springboard. So if you have your Bibles, I would really recommend that you have them ready to flip all over so that you can see yourself that this is not just amusing from an old person, but straight from Scripture. So first, be mindful of your content. Be mindful of your content. Now, baking without a recipe is a recipe for disaster. How do I know this? Doesn't matter. We all agree success at anything as sophisticated as making a fancy cake, well, it's more likely when you have a plan instead of whipping up something on the fly. And yet when it comes to something as pervasive as our words, we give little attention to its content. Yet Solomon says in Proverbs 10, 11, he writes this, The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. You see, Solomon says our words can be a source of refreshment, revitalizing weary souls, or alternatively, it can do great damage, violence to other people. Now, obviously, in our limited time together, I can't cover everything, but I want to focus on two areas for content, a type of communication to avoid and another to commend. First, refuse to gossip. Refuse to gossip. Proverbs 26, 20 says, for lack of wood, the fire goes out, and where there is no whisper, no gossiper, quarreling ceases. So it's very simple, very practical. You can keep the peace just by refraining from gossip. Now, in the friendship message, we touched on flattery. And if you need a refresher, you can go ahead and download and listen to that sermon. But gossip is the cousin of flattery. Gossip is the cousin of flattery. Flattery, you see, is speaking about someone in front of them in a way that you wouldn't behind their back. Well, gossip is the opposite. Gossip is speaking about someone behind their back in a way you wouldn't in front of them. And the root issue for both is what Chris preached on last week, integrity. Are your words consistent, truthful, and righteous regardless of the circumstances? Are you all about talking around a person without ever talking to a person? And I think we readily dismiss gossip as something common and small. Well, everyone just does it. It's human nature. What harm is there from a little gossip? But that's precisely why it's so deadly. Because the most dangerous things in life are often those that appear most innocent. And we know slandering someone, well, that's bad. That's blatantly wrong. There's no mistake when you're ripping on someone. But gossip, well, gossip is sneakier. It's subtle. It's devious because it can be dressed up as genuine concern. Hey, did you hear, you know, he struggles with same-sex attraction. 
or she has body image issues. And the disgusting part is we can disguise our gossip in holy language as Christians. You know, we should really pray for Alan because he's ugly and he told me that he has anger issues. I mean, the first part, it's not relevant, just cruel. <laughs> but the second part is cloaked as caring, right? Oh, we're going to pray for him, so here's some stuff you need to know. But like a snake that slithers in, gossip poisons the minds of others. Because you're not actually approaching the person that can do something about it and change. You're merely changing the perspective of others about that person. And that's why it shouldn't surprise us to read Proverbs like this one, Proverbs 16, 28. Proverbs 16, 28. A dishonest man spreads strife, and a whisper separates close friends. Whispers wound. And while gossip is often like that whisper, softly spoken, it is bold, it is loud in its lie. It deceives all who participate. Just think for a moment about the appeal, the allure of gossip. You see, it makes us feel good about ourselves, like we're in the know, on the inside. We're tricked into thinking we're part of a select group, a special connection with those who share the same juicy secret. Gossip appeals to unity, when in reality, it actually destroys it. Gossip works in direct opposition to the gospel by dividing the body of Christ. And you've seen it. The destruction. The aftermath is never a strengthening of relationships, but a severing of them. So what should we do when we're tempted by gossip? Well, the danger of a forest fire is how quickly it spreads. And gossip is no different. Gossip thrives the more it is passed around. Don't add gasoline or provide more kindling. That means we need to be responsible for not only what we do with our mouths, but also who has our ear. Sure, we don't want to create gossip, and we also don't want to be conduits for it too. So when someone leans in close to tell you the latest rumor about so-and-so, just pump the brakes. Say, hey, no offense, but I don't want to know anything I shouldn't know. If this is really concerning, it's probably more beneficial if you approach the individual and talk to them. I'm sure they would appreciate it. There, that's simple. You don't have to go off and blast the person, you know, you vile heathen, close your dirty mouth. <laughs> Just calm down. We can respond to gossip in a wise, winsome way. We want to be gracious about it, which leads us to the type of content and communication the book of Proverbs commends. Secondly, our words should be refashioned with grace. So refuse to gossip and instead refashion your words with grace. Proverbs 10, 21 says this. The lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for lack of sense. Now the idea here is similar to what we saw in Proverbs 10, 11, That our words can nourish others. Filling up the famish with what's nutritious, what's spiritually healthy, or it can leave people sick to the stomach. This proverb 
is kind of the precursor to the New Testament counterpart. Ephesians 4.29, probably one that you're familiar with, one that is very convicting and sobering, one we should all memorize and put to practice. Apostle Paul writes, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. A lot can be said, but I just want to emphasize the purpose behind our speech. We should be motivated by imparting grace. Grace. It doesn't matter who it is, what hour of the day, or the location of the conversation. The goal of our words is to share grace, to extend grace. You know, many of us enjoy a good pun or a funny joke. Some of us would or could make a career out of sarcasm or trolling people. And there's a place, you know, there's a place for messing around and laughter. But as Christians, we need to be careful about what dominates, what consumes our conversations, the content of our words. And listen, I'm not just picking on funny people. It could be anything else. It could be sports, food, Disneyland, or current affairs. I'm not trying to be legalistic here, but something is off. When our speech is so marked by other material that any mention of Jesus Christ to another individual comes as a shocker. Like, what, what, the, what, what did you just say? That shouldn't happen, right? If people are surprised when you talk about the gospel, or it gets awkward when you're encouraging another brother and sister, then perhaps it's time to reevaluate what characterizes your speech. Grace should be normal not the exception. And yet, I fear for many of us, it's the other way around. Praxis, let me ask, what kind of conversations do you prompt? Are people starved of spiritual content, or do they feast on your gracious words that it strengthens them to do the same? Now, my duty isn't to be so precise, break down and analyze what percent of our conversations should be devoted to various topics, but let me remind you, if the greatest commandment is to love God and to love others, and the greatest commission is to go and make disciples of every nation, then surely we ought to redeem the time by redeeming our words. Our speech should be in Rome of Christ, not of the world. And I'm not saying force every conversation to be serious, where you have to cite chapter and verse and make a reference to Jesus Christ. Don't be weird. Just don't be ashamed either. If the gospel, if the good news about Jesus Christ is our identity, is our most prized possession, then it ought to be reflected in the content of our words. We need wisdom then to find the right occasion because it's a skill knowing not only what to say, but when to say it which leads us to our second major section for tonight. First, we want to be mindful of our content. Second, be sensitive to your context. Be sensitive to your context. As we study, there are proverbs that address the content of our words, but there are just as many that address the circumstances surrounding our speech. We know context is king. 
Just because something is true doesn't mean you're given free reign and license to say it. A wise person, instead, is aware of the situation, sensitive to the setting. Proverbs 15, 23. You can flip there really quickly. Solomon writes, To make an apt answer is a joy to a man, and a word in season, how good it is. If you read between lines, the implication is that a word spoken can also be out of season, out of context. Or turn to Proverbs 25, verses, verse 11. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. Now just close your eyes and picture that. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. This proverb pulls from art from design, that certain decor or jewelry is pretty to us because they have been carefully crafted, each piece delicately and deliberately set in place. It's not just a random hodgepodge of precious stones. It comes together nicely. There's a design to it. Well, Solomon draws a parallel. We ought to be just as thoughtful just as intentional, just as artistic with our words. We should arrange and package them so they are beautiful and well-received, not immediately rejected. And I would say the mistake we make the most in this is that we rush the job. We have this false notion where we think wisdom is measured by speed. The first person to get the first word in must be the brightest. But listen, wisdom waits. Wisdom waits. Abraham Lincoln is often credited for saying, it is better to keep quiet and be considered a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. I like that. It's funny. It sounds like something that could come from the Bible, but that's because it kind of does. Proverbs 17, 28 says this, even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. You see, there's so many times where the smartest thing I could have done was just shut up. And I imagine, I would bet it's probably the same for some of you. We run into trouble when we run our mouths. Exercise patience and do the hard work of waiting so that you can sit back, gather the details, read the room. Here are a few things to look out for. First, are you the right who? Are you the right who? That's W-H-O. So before you speak, consider the dynamics at play. You know, how close are you to this individual or to this group? What kind of relationship do you have with them? Is this the first time you met them, or or you guys been buddies for decades? You see, throughout the Proverbs, the more fragile the situation, the more familiar we ought to be with the person. Proverbs 27, 6, the first part says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Solomon says, It's the friend that reproves, not the stranger. Your calling in life is not to be the rebucinator. You know, where you go around admonishing anyone with a pulse. You have to figure out whether you're the person best suited 
to speak into a particular situation to a specific person. You know, it would be a bizarre thing if you came on Sunday and you saw me after service at the playground. I don't know where it is. Playground. And you saw me hunting down and disciplining all the kids. And granted, some of them may need it. But I'm not the right person for that task. My own children, that makes sense. God has gifted me the responsibility as their father to care and correct them in a loving manner. And similarly, God has sovereignly positioned you, each of you, to speak into the lives of specific people. Not everyone, but some. Have you deliberated over your relationships, over your responsibilities? That in some sense, we are to bear one another's burdens. We are obligated to warn people who are veering off course or to build a brother up who's shrinking, cowering in fear. Are you the right person? Do you have the rapport and capital to spend on certain conversations, even difficult ones? Every relationship provides a unique angle to enjoy and encourage friends, coworkers, neighbors, and family members. I mean, I don't have the same influence as some of you. You know, like, I can't speak to your family members the same way I can speak to mine, unless, surprise, we're part of the same family. But most of these relationships are continually changing. So wise communication demands us to consider these relationships. Second, is this the right when and where? The right when and where. Proverbs 27, 14 Whoever blesses his neighbor with a loud voice rising early in the morning will be counted as cursing. So notice that shift from blessing your neighbor to be considered as cursing. What happened? Well, you did it with a loud voice rising early in the morning. This proverb is self-explanatory. It's so insightful. We all get it, right? You burst into your roommate's room to sing happy birthday at 4 a.m. when they are fast asleep. It is not going to go over well. The sun isn't even awake at that time. Barge in, and you have effectively removed happy from the rest of their birthday. You see, good intentions are not good enough. Good intentions are lost with poor execution. On a serious note, when someone's dad passes away, that's probably not the time to be biblically precise and say, hey, let's be clear. Because your dad wasn't a Christian, he's in hell. Now that sounds ridiculous, but I know that actually has happened. True things said at wrong times is hardly ever right. You know, when someone is fuming, it's probably not the appropriate occasion to tell them, stop being angry. Not very helpful. You just make them more mad, upset. You see, we need to discern the proper setting for our words. Is it too late at night? And are we too tired to have a coherent discussion on how we've wronged each other? Should we be sharing our struggles with purity when other people are within an earshot away? Sudden, solemn questions right after lighthearted conversation or joking in a serious setting both suffer from being ignorant of social cues, of the situation. And let me highlight a scenario I think we're prone 
to overlook the contextual cues, conflicts, conflicts. It is very interesting how in a fight, our tunnel vision for being right blinds us to everything around us. And that's when anger, impatience, they slip in and our emotions can get the best of us. You know what I'm talking about? How you start a conversation with someone to work through a disagreement, but because you feel like little progress is made or you're losing the argument, you go off on a tangent and you bring up other things that have bothered you about this person. The pressure cooker of the moment causes all the gripes you've harbored to boil to the surface and it spills over, and it's a hot mess. And what began as an earnest attempt to clear the air and reconcile over maybe one issue, how you felt slighted because you weren't invited to something, now has escalated until you're shouting a long list of other random offenses. You launch into how this person is consistently late to your meetups. They always get to choose where to eat. They ask for favors but are unwilling to help out in return. And it's an automatic fail. You know, I've never been able to convince someone by flailing my arms, raising my voice, and going on a barrage of perceived wrongs. Now, there may be valid concerns, legitimate items to be discussed, but can you blame someone if they feel like they've been blindsided? It doesn't come off as a genuine desire to resolve conflict and to grow in your relationship when you're just pouring it on, when you're just getting stuff off your chest. You've missed it. The best context to talk about all these other issues is not when things are already tense and difficult. Wisdom, you see, factors in how much a person can bear. We need to be sensitive to how sensitive another can be. So sit down. You know, you don't have to do it all in one conversation. Sit down on different occasions when there's no ulterior motive, no hidden agenda, when you won't be misunderstood, misperceived as just attacking or throwing in a cheap shot. In fact, I earnestly believe if we adopted this policy, it would spare us, save us from a lot of explosive arguments. Sometimes when things are heating up, the wisest thing to do is to cool off. Don't push through it. Call time out to allow tempers to simmer down so that you're calm and collected, so that you are level-headed enough to have a constructive conversation. Wisdom recognizes those things. It sees the situation, the context, and what's likely and unlikely to contribute to a productive discussion. That's why you have these curious verses like Proverbs 26, verses 4 and 5, where Solomon seems to be speaking out of both sides of his mouth. He says, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Verse, uh, verse 5, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. And we scratch our heads, which is it, Solomon, answer or not? And some will claim this is a glaring contradiction in the Bible. But those with wisdom will see it differently. They will see it as an opportunity to be judicious, to exercise discernment. The secret, then, is it's situational. 
That's why we need skill to know not only what to say, but when. When is it the most appropriate and advantageous? And on a related note, this brings us to our third section for tonight, which is be consistent in your conduct. Be consistent in your conduct. So be mindful of your content. Be sensitive of your context. Be consistent in your conduct. If our first section deals with the what and the why questions of our words, and the second with the who, when, and where, then this final section examines the how. When we inspect the book of Proverbs, we discover there's insight and wisdom for the delivery of our words. Proverbs 15, 28. The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but in contrast, the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. Notice the comparison. On one side, you have the wicked, and they are unfiltered in how they communicate. Everything just gushes out of them. But the, uh, the wise, the righteous, they will strategize on how to respond. They want to remove any hindrances, anything that might muddy and obfuscate their message. You see, consistency clarifies and sharpens. Inconsistency obscures and confuses. We know this is the case in the dating world. You know, maybe early on you're trying to see if someone else has feelings for you, and after some interaction you're picking up on some positive signs, only to be devastated when a mutual friend pulls you aside and says, hey, he or she is not interested, and you are depressed. Sure, maybe you misread the signals, but sometimes it's because the other person was sending what? Mixed messages. They were inconsistent. Well, inconsistency isn't exclusive to the romantic realm. It happens in other relationships, especially with kids. And it's so common, it's comical. Not in my family, but I've heard rumors <laughs> where one kid is mischievous and does something bad to their sibling and then is told by said parents to apologize. So this little boy or little girl will oblige begrudgingly. They will furrow their brow, cross their arms, and it's very nasty how they retort, right? Fine. Sorry. And you're just standing there as a parent. You're like, come on now. No one is fooled here. It's all a big show. There is no true remorse, no genuine contrition. And while both of these scenarios are obvious to us, we can be blind to our own inconsistencies. Just think about how you communicate to another individual. Do you ask someone if they need help while you're hanging your head and tapping your feet? How about when you ask your colleague about how they're doing, but you are, your eyes are glued to your phone? And then there's the one we're all guilty of, screaming at a parent, screaming at someone, and trying to convince them, I'm not mad. No one believes you, yourself included. And yet, this is the game that the Pharisees specialized in, having a forked tongue. 
They were ousted by Jesus for their hypocrisy, for their inconsistent lifestyle, experts in empty lip service. But let me ask, are we guilty of the same? Maybe not in flagrant ways. But do people question the authenticity of your words because your body language, your tone, your timing, your behavior, they don't line up. They don't match the meaning of your words. And so people are perplexed. But I want to offer some encouragement because you know what this means? It means we can be right when we're wrong and we we can be wrong when we're right. I know that sounds like a paradox, like I'm trying to be deep, but really I'm dumb. Hear me out. You can be, for example, dogmatic and correct, say about a theological interpretation, or a stance on vaccination or governmental policy, or just about what actually transpired yesterday with a friend. And yet, if you flare your nostrils and speak in such a compatible way, you think God is pleased? You may be 100% accurate. And the reverse is true. You can be gracious and mistaken when it comes to a doctrine in the Bible, your view on political reform, and your recollection of what went down yesterday, and yet because of your humble posture and your desire to love in how you speak, God is pleased, at least with how you handled yourself, how you communicated to another. Now, some of you might protest, you dig in and you refute, But I, well, I just spit fire. I just tell the truth. So it's okay. Maybe you've heard that popular mantra, you know, facts, facts don't care about your feelings. Okay, I get that. Facts may not care about your feelings, but that doesn't mean we can't. Guess what? Reality check, you're not a fact, okay? You're a human being. You can care. You can speak to someone else because you acknowledge they are created in the image of God. And let that fact permeate, then, how you approach and talk to other people. Just read through these Proverbs slowly. Proverbs 16, verses 21 21 to 24. The wise of heart is called discerning, and sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. Let's skip to verse 23. The heart of the wise makes his speech judicious and adds persuasiveness to his lips. Verse 24. Gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. Solomon is not telling us to be slick with our words like a greasy salesperson, but there is wisdom in being prudent, putting some thought into how we say something, how we communicate. You study the Proverbs and just note the number of times an adjective is front-loaded to describe our speech. In Proverbs 15.1, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Proverbs 15.4, a gentle tongue is a tree of life. We understand this principle. We see it in everyday life. You know, vitamins and medicine, they are flavored for a specific reason, are they not? These big pharmaceutical corporations could have made them taste like rotten eggs or rubber tires. But what other options were given? Citrus, strawberry, 
Maybe even bubble gum if you like that. Or cotton candy. I don't know if that's a legitimate one, but if you find it, let me know. But vitamins and medicine, I mean, they work the same regardless of the flavor. But companies make it taste good, so it goes down easier. And shouldn't we as Christians be as intentional, if not more, when it comes to our words? Shouldn't we be consistent in how we speak so that our words are easier to digest? And this is just one little step towards communicating better, clearer, more effectively, and most importantly, in a Christ-like manner. So here's some food for thought. Maybe lay off the caps lock on the keyboard. Try to catch yourself before you shrug your shoulders or let out a big sigh. Lower the volume of your voice. Use more questions. It all does wonders. The small things can make a big difference. When you're consistent in your communication, it compounds the strength of your words. Now, the majority of what we cover tonight can be gleaned, I admit, by Christians and non-Christians alike. We can all learn a thing or two and improve in the speaking department. But listen, we're not just interested in mastering a communication technique or honing our soft skills. That only scratches the surface because underneath, we can be twisted. Exercising self-restraint in speech, that is a good thing. But we can still have angry, murderous thoughts. Being diplomatic and using the right words can help us persuade people. But it can be done to manipulate others, to serve our own kingdoms, our own purposes. We don't just want wholesome speech. As Christians, we want holy lives. And the Bible tells us our words come from within us. Our words are a window to what's inside, what's going on in our hearts. Jesus said, out of the overflow of our hearts, the mouth speaks which means that speaking is more than being smart about our word choice and not cussing. Our crooked hearts make our crooked speech inevitable. You can clean the outside all you want, but if you're dead within, it's only a matter of time before the stench is noticeable. Only a matter of time when we slip up and our loose tongue lashes out. Self-discipline and neat tips and tricks on talking can only get us so far, but sin always rears its ugly head. So what can we do? You know, do we just seal our lips and remain silent? Well, there's a better hope than just staying mute. God has a better word, and His word overflows from who he is, from his holy and perfect character, which means his word wields ultimate authority, perfect efficacy, divine power. And we see this from the first pages of Scripture when God merely speaks and creation comes into existence. And throughout the Old Testament, a theology is formed as we read of God's people, the Israelites, created and shaped by God's word, by the law. 
They're given commandments, instructions, and proverbs so that they might flourish and live wisely under God's good reign. And for seasons, for pockets of time, they might be able to. Yet because God's word remains outside of his people, the people always eventually falter. They go astray. They disobey. The sin in their hearts festers until they curse God in word and in deed. And it's harrowing. It's frightening. Because we wonder, how will God's people ever change? How will God's word ever get inside of them? And the Old Testament closes in a somber fashion until the divine, omnipotent word returns again, this time embodied, encapsulated, manifested in a person. And the Gospel of John opens with a callback to Genesis. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus Christ is the Word of God. And He comes, and He ministers, and Jesus does more than just sprinkle wise saying or teach, expounding on the law. He is the final and fullest expository sermon on God. The author of Hebrews says this, Hebrews 1, 1 to 2, says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. That through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, he perfectly discloses and reveals who God is. And he offers salvation. That it is through the gospel through repenting of our sins and believing in God's final word, in believing all the damning things we have said, the lies, the slander, the exaggeration, the broken promises, they can all be paid for at the cross of Jesus Christ that we are forgiven and reconciled to God through the blood of this word, the Son of God. A relationship then restored so fully that as the Gospel of John records, Jesus abides in us and us in him. That our boast then is that we are in Christ, in Christ. And he's in us, the word of God at last dwelling within. And our hearts are changed. Our hearts are transformed. And so it touches every fabric of life, including our words. You see, the king of your heart, the king of your heart will dictate your words. Have you ever seen this connection in the book of Proverbs? We'll end here. Turn to Proverbs 4, 23. It's a famous proverb, one that you've probably really liked, so you've memorized. And I just want to read it. Solomon writes, Proverbs 4, 23, Keep your heart... Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. And we usually stop there, right? Look at verse 24. Put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. Solomon links the two. That your heart has an effect upon what you say. You see, when you are seated on your throne 
on the throne of your heart. You give no second thought. You just speak your mind. You talk as you please. But when Jesus, when Jesus reigns on high, he molds the lips. And we are transformed. We are his mouthpiece. We serve and represent then our gracious king. We honor and reflect his kindness, authority, and love in our words. As ambassadors, we serve and represent him. We make it our aim, then, to be mindful of our content, sensitive to our context, and consistent in our conduct, because Jesus is in us, and we want to share him in everything, including our speech. Let's pray. Father, your word tells us the good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Lord, we pray that we would not trivialize what departs from our lips, but we would trace them back to the source, to the origin, to our hearts. And more than feeling defeated because we have a loose tongue or we can't seem to get a control of what we say and how we say it, Lord, we look to Christ we look to the word of God who has come to redeem filthy people, those who are filthy in speech, that we might impart grace because we have been shown grace. Lord, make us wise, not in our own sights, but according to your word, heavenly wisdom, wisdom from above, that it might shape, color what we say, how we say it, Lord, that we might be wise to, to think through all the variables and how we can serve and love others and point people to Jesus by our speech. We ask for your help. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.